0: Reflecting on Psalm 84, William Plummer, a 19th century Southern Presbyterian minister, uh, said this. Quote, we cannot have too much religious affection if it is pure and holy. Which raises the question, what, what is pure and holy religious affection? How do we know whether or not when we, we worship God our, our affections are carnal or consecrated? Well, consider the reflections of the good Dr. Plummer. He writes, While carnal men may be affected with the decency, the dignity, and the solemnity of God's worship, and may approve of its good effects on the minds and morals and manners of the community, yet that which, above all else, endears God's house to regenerate men is God Himself. In other words, what uh, Plummer is, is arguing, and I think he's right, uh, is that holy and pure religious affections are chiefly taken up with God Himself. That's precisely what Psalm 84 reveals. It reveals a man who is so enamored with God that it pains him not to be able to gather at God's temple in God's presence. And it's my prayer that as we study Psalm 84 this morning, that our affections for God would increase as we consider how He has made it possible for us to have fellowship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to, the, to the passage we're thinking about this morning, to Psalm 84. If you're going you to use one of the Bibles provided, right there in the... the, the Hugh and around you, uh, I believe you can find the passage, find Psalm 84, on page 493. 493. And while you're turning there, let me just offer a little bit of background for our study this morning. The Psalms uh, are a collection of uh, 150 uh, prayers, poems, proclamations, and songs of the ancient people of God. As a whole, the Psalms teach us that the people of Israel were, were prayerfully and patiently waiting for God to make good on His promises. They were petitioning God to, um, to bring about His inaugurated kingdom and to send His King. The, the Psalms as a whole, these 150 uh, songs and prayers uh, are, are arranged into five different books and Psalm 84... It can be found within the third book of the Psalms. Book 3 seems to be filled with Psalms from the people of Israel, petitioning God to look on His anointed, to make good on His promises to King David, and to raise up His king, so that the people of Israel might be relieved of their suffering. And perhaps in view uh, in particular is the the suffering of the exile. At first glance, Psalm 84 seems to be a, a happy song. Uh, it seems to be a song which expresses a longing to be in the lovely presence of the Lord. But if the setting of the exile is right, then I, I think we will actually see the depth of this longing with greater clarity. You see, in the exile, the people of Israel were they were forcibly removed from the promised land because they had failed to keep their promise to obey God's commands. That was God's punishment upon the people of Israel, but His punishment, did not obliterate his promises to raise up a king and establish his eternal kingdom. My sense is that Psalm 84 was written sometime between the first deportation, the first kind of movement toward exile for the southern kingdom in 597, and the destruction of the temple in 587 BC. The psalmist is expressing his longing to go up to the temple of God at an ordinary time of pilgrimage for worship. And his, it's his prayer for the Lord to look on his anointed and answer his prayer. So that he might soon return to worshiping in the presence of God in the temple. So even if the setting of, of exile is not right. There's clearly something preventing the psalmist from going up to the temple. And so let's, let's read Psalm 84 to see if we can hear the longings of the psalmist in that light. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. See, early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. In Zion, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. Well, I'm sure you you notice that the deep longing that's strewn throughout this psalm. In the, the first three verses, the psalmist expresses a longing to dwell with God. And then in verses four through seven, the psalmist then blesses those who are able to make a pilgrimage to God's dwelling place and appear before him. And finally, in verses eight through twelve, the psalmist prays and petitions God for perseverance until he's able to enter into God's presence. We're going to study Psalm 84 in three sections: desiring to dwell with God, blessing those who go before. And praying for preservation and perseverance. If, you take, if you're taking notes this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And I'll repeat each of those headings as we're moving into each new section. Like now. So let's begin with our first point. Where we see the psalmist desiring to dwell with God. Desiring to dwell with God. Just go ahead and read again. Let me read again for us those first three verses. The psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my God and my king. As we, we, we read through as we read through these verses. Uh, and the whole psalm earlier, I'm sure you noticed the psalm is written in the first person. Uh, the psalmist uses words like my and I to describe his perspective, his vantage point. He's a, apparently a part of the lineage or company of Korah. Those who identify themselves as the sons of Korah are responsible for at least uh, 11 psalms in the Psalter. In First Chronicles chapter 9, verses 19 to 21, we learn that some from Korah's lineage were doorkeepers at the tabernacle. And that issue is going to emerge uh, toward the end, the conclusion of the psalm. I'm sure you also notice from the ascription that the psalm was written for a choir of temple singers, or for the congregation of Israel as a whole. And though this was initially one person's prayer, it became a prayer for the people of Israel as a whole. Uh, both Giddith and Selah, a term that you'll see twice there in the psalm, they're musical terms of some kind. Giddith could have uh, possibly been a, a particular kind of instrument that was used uh, with this, in singing this psalm. And selah is, uh, is likely some kind of notation that has to do with a uh, tempo for singing the psalm. But notice that the psalmist opens, the psalm opens with a declaration of the loveliness of God's dwelling place. The temple, and even the tabernacle in its day, was beautiful. Uh, it was beautiful preeminently because God dwelt there. God's presence makes all things beautiful. But His dwelling place was even beautiful in terms of its aesthetic beauty. It was designed to be beautiful with bold royal colors and gold. The tabernacle was designed to be a royal tent. It was the tent of Israel's God and King. She dwelt in the wilderness. And the tabernacle was designed to be the temple, uh, which took over kind of the role of the tabernacle. The temple was designed to be a royal palace, the place and the palace of the king who who reigned in Jerusalem, or as it's called in verse 7, Zion. Uh, From what we can tell from verse 2, the psalmist longs to be in God's presence. He desires to be in the dwelling place, the courts of the living God. As I mentioned earlier, the, the temple was designed to be something like a royal palace for God. Uh, and the design of the palace had similarities with, with ordinary homes in that day. Homes in, in ancient Israel often had a, a courtyard kind of complex where uh, visitors, when they arrived and they, they turned up, they could be greeted and taken further into the, the home. And, and it would just simply be enough. It would simply be enough for the psalmist just to get to the courtyard there. He doesn't even ask to make it into the interior portion of the temple. So badly does he want to be with his God that it would be enough for him just to make it into the courts. You know, reflecting on this, do we we want the same thing? Uh, Do we want to be with God like the psalmist does? Do we have this longing? this language of longing and fainting for the temple courts of God is is really somewhat subdued in our translations. Uh, In the original language, these words express a burning passion. It's the psalmist's all-consuming desire to be in the courts of the Lord. He wants to be there so that his heart and his flesh, so that with his whole being, he can cry out to the living God. He wishes to express his joys. And even as I think we'll see a little later in this psalm, his sorrows to God. The psalmist is even envious of the birds. Uh, The sparrows and the swallows get to fly into and rest and nest in the eaves and rafters of the temple. They get to be in God's dwelling place. It's interesting, these birds are really not the most majestic birds either. Uh, In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're told that sparrows uh, aren't presented as being worth great monetary value. Uh, They were often all that poor lepers could offer. To the priests for sacrificial cleansing. We discover that in Leviticus 14 chapter verse four. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 that two sparrows were sold for a penny. Those sparrows weren't worth a whole lot monetarily. We discover in the scriptures that God cares for them. He, he feeds them. and here he is even presented as giving them a home. And if he cares for the sparrows how much more does He care for His people? If God welcomes the birds, how much more does He welcome us? This desire to dwell with God is nothing less than a desire for God Himself. And this is what is most remarkable to me about these verses. Did you notice how the psalmist describes God throughout them? He's Yahweh. He's the Sovereign Lord. That's all caps there. Verse 2 which means the Lord who who rules over creation. He's also the sovereign Lord of hosts. You see there in verses 1 and 3, that term hosts was the term that God first used to describe the people of Israel as He brought them out of Egypt. They were a, a host of people that He brought out. He is their God. The God of Israel, though, is not like the gods of the nations. He is not deaf and dumb and dead. He is the living God, as verse 2 makes clear. He is the God who is alive and active and interacting with the world and with His people. This living God, the Lord of creation, the Lord of Israel is also King over all. And He's a personal King. Notice that the psalmist says, My King and My God. This is the one and only God, the God that the psalmist has been explaining to us that He wants to have and does have a personal relationship with. These verses, they challenge us, don't they? We see the psalmist's affection for God, and we think to ourselves, I ought to long for God as as he longs for God. One reason that our longings might not be as deep as the psalmist's were is that we often don't view ourselves as exiles. Exiles. Exiles were Israelites who were dragged out of the promised land of Caden and and forbidden to return. They were thrust out of their home like Adam was thrust out of the garden. Friends, brothers and sisters, we we don't live in the place we were made to live. Don't don't get me wrong. I I love this world. I love this earth. And there's a part of that which is good and right to enjoy the place that God has set us in. But too often we are comfortable with this world as our home and, and think nothing of the place that we were made for. But, but how can we be comfortable with this world? when We heard from Revelation 7 earlier in the service with what life in God's presence is like. In glory, there is no more hunger or thirst. No more children will starve. In glory, there are no more tears, no more death no more suffering, no more pain. And like the ancient people of God, Christians are exiles. Did you know that that's how Jesus' disciples thought about themselves and their fellow believers? Listen to how the Apostle Peter addresses uh, Christians in his his first letter. He writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in... uh, verse 17 of chapter 1 in that letter he tells believers to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile do you hear what Peter's doing there he is calling believers to consider their situation in history as analogous to those Israelites who were exiled from the promised land of Canaan we are not yet home you know God is near to us he is so near to us that he is with us and yet we're still not home we have not made it to the promised land of heaven and our hearts ought to ache for that home so when we see the sorrow and the suffering in this world we ought to remember that our home is in heaven and that it is a much better place and we got to long for that home. And if you can believe it, we were made to dwell with God. We were made for temple. A man was first made for the garden temple described in the first two chapters of the Bible. But after the first man, after Adam sinned and fell, that perfect garden temple was lost. That dwelling place, that place of fellowship with God was lost. And in God's kindness, He promised to make all things new through His Son, Jesus Christ. It was because the temple of His body was raised that Jesus will one day be given authority to make all things new, to make the new heavens and the new earth into a new garden temple. And a garden temple that cannot be lost. One day, the whole world will be the temple of God. One day the whole cosmos will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We read earlier from John's vision in uh, Revelation and how the saints in glory were satisfied, how they served God in His temple. But listen to this wonderful and fascinating section from the end of John's vision. In Revelation chapter 21, just verse 22, the Apostle John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, And what the Apostle John goes to work on to kind of work out then in that chapter and what he said earlier in that chapter is namely that the heavenly Jerusalem where the heavenly temple dwells and descends from heaven to earth thereby renewing the whole created order. Not merely restoring Eden but bringing the lost paradise to its intended goal. The lost paradise is recovered and restored in such a way that it can never be lost again. And that is our future. And we should desire to dwell there in that heavenly temple as the psalmist desired to dwell in the temple of old. And and the truth is, is that we cannot manufacture an increased longing for heaven, it has to be given to us as a gift from God. So let's pray for God to give us an increased longing to dwell with Him. Children, uh, youth, young adults, Um, I I wonder if you often feel this pressure from your parents and from people like me, Uh, adults, (laughs) kind of trying to encourage you to love God. Now, I I can't hide the truth from you. We want you to love God. More than anything else in the world, we want you to love God. And perhaps you want to love God too. We know, and you need to know, that we can't make you love God any more than you can make yourself love God. As I said a minute ago, we can't manufacture love for God. That comes from Him. He gives us a, a love for Himself. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we read, We love because He first loved us. Only God can give you a love for His Son, Jesus Christ. That's simply why, that's why I want to encourage you to, to simply pray for a love for God. Pray, Lord, lead me to love you. That's such a simple and yet profound prayer. Lord, lead me to love you. And I'd encourage everyone here to pray that prayer. And let's also use the appointed means that God has given and has promised to work through in order to encourage our hearts to pant after Him. He has given us His Word, which tells us about the bright future, and glorious future that's before us. He's given us prayer in which we practice our fellowship with Him. He's given us communion in which we remind ourselves of the great wedding feast that we will have with Him when He does make all things new. He has given us each other with whom we make this journey to the heavenly temple. In fact, that leads to the next section of this psalm. In verses 1 to 3, we heard of the psalmist's desire to dwell in the presence of God and to really dwell with God. Let's turn now look at verses 4 through 7, where we see the psalmist express that those who appear in God's presence regularly are blessed. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Blessed are those who go before God. Blessed are those who go before God. And as we consider this point, let me just read verses 4 through 7 for us. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valleys of Bukhah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The birds, they're blessed to be in God's house, as we saw in verses One to three. But more so are the people who are privileged to go there and to sing God's praise. That's what we see here in verses four to seven. Two blessings are uttered in these verses. Verses four and five. And they're followed by two declarations concerning the journey to God's house in verses four and six. The psalmist, he he puts distance between himself and those portrayed in these verses. Did you Did you catch that? Two different kinds of people are privileged from the psalmist's perspective. First, there are those who live in and around Jerusalem. There are those who may dwell in God's house continually or singing God's praise. It's a privilege, it's a blessing to be so close to the temple. Blessing, particularly in the Psalms, is the bestowal of divine favor, of God's favor upon God's people. Here the psalmist may have in mind not merely the inhabitants of Jerusalem but also the priests and doorkeepers who who work at the temple each and every day. Each day they are engaged in glorifying God through prescribed worship. You know, sometimes as Christians we take for granted that we have such free and unhindered access to God. In His presence. As believers in Jesus Christ, as members of the, the new covenant, we know that we're not obligated to go to a temple at Jerusalem and gather there. We know that all of God's purposes for the temple were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Himself told us in John chapter 2, verse 19, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then just a couple of verses later, the Apostle John, he says that Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. See, we don't go to a temple in Jerusalem to find forgiveness and fellowship with God. Rather, we go to Jesus. We find him, find forgiveness through him and fellowship with him. What's more, when we embrace Jesus in faith and we are united to him, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become the dwelling place of God because the Spirit of Jesus dwells within us. It's what the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, when he rhetorically asks Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is within you, whom we have from God. You see, we have, as Christians, what the psalmist ached for. We have what he longed for as believers. We have God with us. And this is perhaps another reason that we may not ache like the psalmist did. Sadly, sometimes we take for granted the amazing reality that we have access to God every moment of every day through our union with Jesus Christ, we are blessed and we can and ever should sing God's praise. Still, there's a, another group in this psalm who are blessed, who is blessed. It's those who are able to make the journey to the temple. Those who find their strength in God. Those who find their strength in God make Him their fortress and shield and deliverer. They do not hope in themselves or in their own strength to save themselves. Rather, they hope in God. And this is evidenced by their journey to God's house. And let's just pause right here and make ourselves aware of the fact that this is a group of people going to worship God. Far from being an individual pursuit, faith in God is a a community pursuit. Just can, Can you think of a single Old Testament act of worship where only one person was involved? You know, it's popular to say these days that my faith is a private matter. That's popular, but it's wrong. Faith may be personal, but it is never private. And let's be honest, if we were all to privatize our faith, none of us would persevere in this journey. It's too hard. The valleys are too deep. The shadows are too long and our hearts are too dark. We need fellow pilgrims to help us persevere on the way. The, the pilgrims of this psalm, they, they get on the highway to Zion. They make this journey to Jerusalem and the temple because they know that in God there is forgiveness and blessing. They get on the highways to Zion because it's actually their heart's desire. That's what that phrase, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, I think means to communicate. It's their heart's desire to go and meet God. Just like it was the psalmist's desire to dwell with the Lord. Their hearts are on the road to the temple before their feet are. Sometimes uh, Old Testament saints get a bad rap, and sometimes rightly so, uh, but sometimes it's undeserved. Sometimes we look at saints in the Old Testament, we see all of their sins, Uh, we see the, the passages that warn them about just going through the motions of sacrifice, we read passages about vain worship. And we let those passages color our reading of kind of the rest of the Old Testament. But let's not miss this depiction of Old Testament saints. Uh, There were some really godly Old Testament saints who loved the Lord. They had a passion for Him, and they undertook long and hard journeys to meet with Him. Uh, We can barely sometimes make the journey from the bed to the coffee pot to the table. Um, But here are these saints who carved out weeks to make a long, hard journey to go and meet with God. Many Old Testament saints love the Lord dearly. And far from looking down on them, we can and should learn from them. In verse 6, we're given a description of their blessed journey. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. As they go, they, they transform the landscape in front of them. Or, or the landscape is transformed before them. Uh, this valley was likely a place that was dry and arid, a, a parched and thirsty land. It was a difficult place to travel through. But because these pilgrims are blessed, the Lord is pleased to bless their journey. A the place that had no water is made into a place of springs and rains and pools. And this is, this is obviously highly poetic language, right? The, the whole point of this is to communicate that those who have God in their hearts are blessed as they have their feet on the road to meet Him. Having drawn strength from God, they go on in strength. They go from strength to strength, as verse 7 says there. They go on in strength until they meet the one from whom they draw their strength. Each one will appear, notice, before God in Zion. And that is the ultimate blessing, to meet with God. The goal has never been the journey. The goal has always been God. And really, the prevailing wisdom of our culture actually inverts that truth. We're told that life is not about the destination. It's about the journey. But friends, the journey is not unimportant, but it is not all important. The destination is actually all important. If the journey of your life does not end in fellowship with God... If the goal of your life's journey is not fellowship with God, then I can promise you this. Your destination will be destruction. Your journey is temporary. Your destination is eternal. You know that there is meaning to this life. Meaning that stretches beyond the journey. And the meaning of, to your life is found precisely in what these pilgrims got on the road to Jerusalem to go and do. They got on the road to come before God, to confess their sin, to seek His mercy, and to rest in the strength of His salvation. This is what fulfills the deepest longings of every pilgrim, of every person. As Augustine rightly said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. If your life's journey is not one of seeking after God you will be restless so find rest in Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 Jesus said this come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and if you want to know how to find rest in Jesus keep listening because this next section of the psalm I think it takes us to him it feels as though the, the psalmist continues to hold himself at a distance from both those who continually dwell in the temple and from this group of pilgrims who go to dwell with God. The psalmist seems to be neither a dweller nor a traveler. So what will his response be? Well, his response is to pray. That's what happens in verses 8 to 12. And what we'll think about in our next point. Here the psalmist prays for preservation and perseverance. He prays for preservation and perseverance. And perseverance, let me read verses eight to 12 again. The psalmist writes, "O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, for the Lord God is a son." and a shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. I wonder, I wonder if you ever feel as though God is is, is very distant. Uh, The solution that the ancient people of God had for that feeling, was to pray. The psalmist here asks God to hear his prayer. And not simply to hear, but to give ear. Which is another way of saying, answer me, O God. He, he cries out in prayer to the God of Jacob. This is a way of reminding God of his attachment to his people. Referring to God as the God of Jacob Was a way of, of calling God to remember his covenant with Abraham. And how God promised his people an abundant offspring and an abundant land. Jacob was in some ways the the father of Israel. He was the the last major patriarch who led his family down to Egypt. He became known as as Israel. And so did the people who came from his line. The people of Jacob, the people of Israel, multiplied in Egypt. God heard their groaning. And they were hard pressed under Pharaoh's slavery. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 we read, And God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. By crying out to the God of Jacob, the psalmist is calling God to remember His covenant, to bless the people of Israel. So one covenant is alluded to there in verse 8, and another one is alluded to there in verse 9. And here we're actually given the content of the psalmist's prayer. He prays, he calls God to behold the shield of Israel, and he wants God to look on the face of His anointed, this is a prayer for blessing and favor for Israel's king. And notice he places God right at the center of these petitions. Placing God at the center of this prayer for blessing is a powerful. The shield of Israel, the anointed one, is Israel's king. And as I said, this, this brings another covenant into view, particularly uh, God's covenant with David. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, God promised that one from David's line would reign over Israel forever. Israel's king was God's representative on earth. The king was supposed to be a shield and a protector of God's people. He was a servant king of the heavenly king. This was an appropriate prayer for all of the people of Israel. For their fortunes of the people were linked to the fortunes of the king. If it did not go well with the king, then it did not go well with the nation. We see that positively with Josiah, who was a good king. He he walked up rightly before the Lord, and he was a blessing to the people of Israel. We also see this dynamic negatively with kings in Israel and Judah. You could pick many of them. Uh, just take Hoshea for example. In Second Kings chapter seventeen, we're told about Hoshea's reign, and there we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result of his rebellion against God, the king of Assyria came and invaded the land and besieged Samaria for three years. Hosea could have cut down the idols in the high places, but instead he did what was evil in the sight of God, and the people of the northern kingdom of Israel followed his terrible lead and suffered the consequences. And the first word there of verse 10 you'll notice is for. For this gives us the why behind the psalmist's prayer for the king. Praying for the king, for God's faithfulness to him, and for the king's faithfulness to God, would continue to allow pilgrims and priests to gather at the temple to worship and fellowship with God. This, as we have seen uh, throughout the whole psalm, is the psalmist's chief desire for the psalmist a day in the Lord's courts is better than a thousand days anywhere else on earth. And the comparisons continue there in the second portion of verse 10. Uh, the, uh, the psalmist would even rather be one who stands on the cusp of the doorway of the temple than to dwell lavishly in the tents of the wicked. He'd rather be engaged in what was likely a thankless job of, of being a doorkeeper at the temple, just kind of opening and closing, you know, than to be anywhere else. It could be tempting to be in the tents of the wicked. Evil and wickedness always holds itself out as enticing and attractive, but its fruit is always bitter. It's never satisfying. The only thing that will satisfy the psalmist is fellowship with God. Why? Why is the psalmist's chief desire to dwell with God? Because of who God is. God is a sun and a shield. Through Him and only Him comes eternal blessing, favor and honor. He showers His righteous ones, those who walk up rightly before Him with blessing upon blessing. Those who trust in God are blessed because God is pleased to bless those who trust in Him. This psalm Undoubtedly, has kind of an immediate horizon for its author. It is a psalm of longing to be with God and for the Lord to so bless His king, so that the psalmist can once again gather with God at the temple, in His lovely dwelling place. But as I've been hinting at, and sometimes stating kind of explicitly, this psalm also has a future horizon. It has a horizon of future fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, uh, this the longings of this psalm are met in Jesus. When the Lord looked on His Son, His Anointed One, and raised the temple of His body from the grave, the longings of this psalm were, melt, were met. And perhaps we should even say that the longings of Jesus Himself were met. As a faithful Israelite, Jesus, He would have, he would have sung this psalm. He would prayed this prayer. He knew the earthly temple But who better than he would have known just how lovely the dwelling place of God was? Who would have longed for heaven and home with a deeper and greater desire than he? Who would have been so alone in his days as the psalmist was alone in his day? Who would have so deeply depended upon God, entrusting himself to the Father each step of the way? He, above all people, walked uprightly and the father has not withheld from him any good thing far from it the father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth he has placed all things under his rule and jesus has been blessed according to romans chapter 1 verse 4 jesus has been declared to be the son of god in power by his resurrection from the dead have your longings been met in jesus Have they been met by Jesus? Friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a believer or follower in Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to Jesus Christ in faith. You see, you were made for fellowship with God, and that fellowship only comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. Your heart is restless because you're in rebellion against God. We're all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. God made us for fellowship, but we have exiled ourselves from His presence by our sin. We have decided to live our own way rather than God's way. We make up our own rules, our our own standards, and if we're honest with ourselves, we often don't even live up to those standards that we make for ourselves. When we live our own way, we anoint ourselves as king of our lives, instead of submitting our lives to God's anointed King, Jesus. We all deserve to be punished for our sin against God. We deserve to be forever shut out of God's presence. Because He is holy, just, and good, God cannot tolerate sin in His presence. And because we have all sinned against the eternal God, we all deserve to face His just wrath for all eternity in hell. And all sin will come under His judgment. And the question is, will we personally face His wrath for our sin, or will we come to Him in repentance and faith, believing that His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our shield, who shields us from God's terrible wrath? Will you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, believing in Him? You see, that is the good news of the Bible. The good news of the Bible is that though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, He plans to rescue us from His wrath through His Anointed One. In the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God became man. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He was the only one who ever lived a perfectly upright life before God. The life that we have not lived. And in love... He gave up His life as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice on behalf of sinners. He stood in the place and took the punishment for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and put their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God the Father looked on His anointed Son and King. And He raised His Son from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight, that He is our sufficient shield from God's wrath. And those who trust in Jesus Christ will never be shut out from God's presence. So friends, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today for your salvation. Look on Christ in faith and you will know the blessing of God's gracious favor to save you from your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus. That through Him we're brought into fellowship with God. Please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member. Coworker that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about. than what it means that Jesus is God's anointed one. That He's his our shield. And that we can have the, the desires that this psalmist has. To dwell with God for all eternity. There's no better news than this good news of Jesus Christ. Well, we should conclude. We we began this morning by considering the truth that true worshipers are taken up with the one true God. God is to be uppermost in our affections. We see the psalmist express this through His love, not merely for the Lord's temple, but for the Lord Himself. He blessed the pilgrims on the way because they were blessed to go and meet with God which was what his, was his heart's chief desire. We also saw him pray for the Lord's anointed one, his king, in the hopes that the welfare of the king would lead to the possibility of, of him returning to the temple for fellowship with God. And as we reflect on Psalm 84, let us be challenged by the psalmist's deep yearning for fellowship with the one true God. And let us also be comforted that in Jesus Christ we have all that the psalmist hoped for, and longed for. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our King. And through Him, we are brought near to God. Because in Him, God has drawn near to us. Let's pray together.